Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context, and I have a very fun guest who knows lots about words, so I'll let her introduce herself. Hey, everybody. I'm uh, Jess Zafaris. I am the author of Words from Hell and Once Upon a Word, both etymology books, one for children, one for adults. I'll let you guess which one that is. Also, the creator of Useless Etymology, which is a blog that's about etymology, as you might imagine. And uh, in my spare time slash day job. Uh, I also uh, do social strategy and content direction. I have a little TikTok channel where people listen to me yammer about words. And uh, I've been in media for a long time. I've been a journalist and editor for about 15 years. So here I am. Life of words. So a um, little background. Where, where are you from? How'd you kind of fall into to love with, with words and the English language? I'm originally from Tennessee. I spent the first 18, well, the formative 18 years of my life there. And I'd say probably the the first thing that got me into speaking, writing, digging into word origins was this moment when I was in French class in high school. I had this teacher who was an absolute volcano of a person like she was she was boisterous she was loud she was passionate she taught me as much about life as she did about french probably more um she's since passed away but she was so impactful in the community there that uh there's still a 5k named after her in memphis but she gave us a reading assignment we had to read le petit prince or the little prince for our french class in french and so we did a reading that one night we had our little vocabulary sheet for new words we got back in class the next day and she had uh, she, she asked us, like, while we were reading through it again, uh, to uh, translate a word that we came across, and none of us could answer. It wasn't on the vocab sheet, we, and, and we, like, hadn't done the work of uh, looking it up, and she exploded. Oh, she was so mad. She was like, how could you do this? You had, you had dictionaries at your fingertips. You could have looked it up online. You could have done all of these things, and you chose ignorance instead of choosing to learn for yourself and that one stuck with me forever like the ptsd of not having looked up a word and and like the interest i think i i have like i'm perpetually interested in continually asking the next level of why like about words so Mm. it's not just how do you spell it and what does it mean but why does it mean that and why do we say it that way because there's this notion that english is illogical but there is a lot of logic to it nonetheless i I would go with uh i agree with that it's illogical just just you know the the number of words that sound the same or spelled the same but pronounced differently it's got to be a nightmare for people learning english as a second language and meanwhile, I say that while I'm trying, I struggle to learn Spanish with my Duolingo app. Right. <laughs> There's a fantastic book called Uncovering the Logic of English, um, which is a good read for folks who are like kind of grappling with the uh, with the inconsistencies that sometimes seem to crop up across English because there's a lot more consistency to it than you realize. But because it is such an amalgam of languages, particularly Germanic and Romance with, uh, you know, Hellenistic and, and other and Norse languages uh, folded in. It does have so much richness and so many um, so many synonyms. Yeah, I when I was in school, I, I hated reading. I hate, I hated anything that had to do with with books. <laughs> <laughs> and and it came out later in life. My ADHD probably had a big big factor in that, and I was probably not diagnosed with having some. Comp- I was diagnosed with comprehension issues, but it was because my brain was moving faster than my eyes were able to. So. Anytime we had to read in class, I hated it. Uh, stutter, stammer, self-esteem issues were, were atrocious. But what are some of your favorite literary devices? Oh, favorite literary devices. That's a good question. I love the idea of metonymy and litotes. These are two different devices where you replace one thing for another. And it's a thing we do all the time, like saying, calling the U.S. government the White House, for example. We, we replace one small part or one symbolic item for the whole of the U.S. government. Same for, like, under my roof 
implies everything that happens in your house. Right. So I, I like the sort of like the, the idea that we're able to distill down or that we have a tendency to distill down entire functions, entire governments, entire regions, whole concepts into like one emblematic thing. It, it's almost um, it almost reflects the same way that we develop logos that become emblematic of whole uh, businesses yeah. or um, it's like a, a specific twist on a metaphor, which I really appreciate. I, uh, I actually found out what exactly, and I'm going to butcher the name of it, but uh, Ututites? Is that how you Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that was actual thing, and then I realized how much I use that device. I'm quite partial to alliteration and uh, anagrams. Palindromes? Yeah, they're, they're always fun, too. They're wrist more than lap. <laughs> <laughs> and that is... <laughs> Palindrome's backwards. Uh, palindrome backwards. Got it. it. Took me a second to, <laughs> to get that. Euphemisms, puns are always great. Satire, irony is is you know that, that seething sarcasm can be uh, can be fun sometimes. One of my favorite facts about sarcasm, if you don't mind, is that it means um, it comes from a Greek root meaning to strip off the flesh, essentially. So it's it's bearing the it's mocking sarcasm that hurts a little bit. Yeah. And the difference between that and sardonic, the word sardonic uh, comes from the name of the island of Sar- Sar- sardine. It's a sardine. Or Maybe sardine. Yeah. I think it's Sardinia. Um, there was a particular plant, apparently, that would make your face kind of twitch in a weird way, and that was associated with Sardinians, um, so that's how we ended up with Sardonic. That's a, a really curious one. But I think sarcasm, it sounds a lot more aggressive than it ends up being, at least in most cases. I'm sure there can be very cutting sarcasm. I think it, it comes down to the uh, wielder of the words on, on just how, right, exactly. uh, how much flesh is stripped off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are are you familiar with uh, the TV show Letterkenny? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you see the literal cold opening that they did? It was nothing but alliteration. I want to say it was uh, season three, episode one, I think. And it, I don't think I've gotten that far yet. I bet I just recently started watching it, so um, I'll have to check that one out. It is. I was just sitting there in awe, and it's it's hysterical because first of all, I, I love the writing that they do for the show, but. The way they opened up, it was just the full alphabet, and it was just absolutely an amazing example of alliteration. Another uh, literary device that comes to mind, uh, and it, actually your your um, image of a TIE fighter on your wall behind you for our <laughs> listeners reminded me of this one um, because of the mnemonic device I used to remember it when I was in school. Um, it's anastrophe, and it refers to the juxtaposition of word order for poetic effect. And the reason that I associated with Star Wars is because the reason I would, or the way I would, I would remember what that meant was that Yoda engages in anastrophe with his word order switching. So anastrophe, astronomy, Yoda, space, <laughs> word order it all switching. comes together. <laughs> right. Do you find yourself getting persnickety about how words are used sometimes, especially when they're misused? Interestingly, the more I learn about word origins, the less pedantic I am. Um, I find that the the more I learn about it, the, the more I learn that a lot of it is creative and inventive and not and and meaning has shifted shifted so much throughout history that it's almost not worthwhile to prevent that the chaos of of invention and creativity and language from doing its thing and and a lot of the rules that we've created they're they're rules that like people in the 1920s created as a part of a like a pedagogy for only rich white dudes you know which like sure rich white dudes great but like that's not how everyone talks and that's never been the way everyone talks right so saying that someone doesn't speak or isn't speaking correctly if they're using a different dialect if they're being creative if they're coining a slang term um i i think letting that be the or recognizing the beauty in that is more interesting and results in better conclusions at least from my perspective got it i like the idea of letting things kind of flow a little bit i think that you know you can see how much language has kind of morphed and changed even over the last 15 20 years in how some of the slang that's used i mean i'm sure that the slang that i used when i was my kid's age is vastly different i mean i think now it's more like a abbreviated text kind of conversations so allowing for that free flow of creativity i commend you on that for me it drives me a little nuts sometimes when i hear people it's more when i hear words that you know 
only have one meeting, but somebody is completely butchering it. And unfortunately, right. there's there's been some recent examples with certain elected officials' misuse of, of words and such. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be in power and you're going to, um, you know, make your entire career focused on your, you know, intelligence and the way you wield words, then you should probably use them with a degree of precision. So I get that. Um <laughs> One example, though, that I tend to cite is the word literally, um, which has been used (laughs) to mean, like people say, seem to think that that's um, a word that has been misused recently, but it has been used to mean it's recorded with the usage uh, figuratively as far back as like the 1700s. People have been using it in that way uh, and people have been, you know, pedantically telling them not to right alongside them. But that's been happening for like 300 years. (laughs) So, um, like, I want to say it's in... Oh, I forget. It's not Mark Twain, but there's a, a similar contemporary American author and then another one, another British author from around that time who specifically uses the word literally to mean figuratively in a classic novel. <laughs> I'll see if I can dig that up before the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go back and read that because that, to me, is that, that's just hilarious. Um, right. And also, like, the word literally itself is almost never used literally anyway, because it literally means according to the letter. So if you're not talking about letters literally, then technically what you're saying isn't literal to begin with. Good to know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What brought you to wanting to write the book? um, So um, my first book, the kids book was a, a result of um, a publisher finding my blog, Useless Etymology, which I had been running for about 10 years. But at the time, I'd probably been running it for maybe eight. So they, um, the, the first publisher that I worked with was Rockridge Press. It's now owned by Simon & Schuster. Um, and they were looking to publish a kid's book of word origins. Um, and they thought that my voice and the way that I was sharing information, the way I did my research was a good fit for their imprint. So um, first I wrote that one. That one, because they came with the idea, it was less like my own inception. And I had never written for children before. So I like I worked with a, an editor who kind of helped me put it in kid language, which was tricky at times. And there were many words that I couldn't include because they were like, too dark or too weird or might be a little inappropriate or just like too tough to understand like the the logical twists over the course of the word's lifetime sometimes just were a little too advanced for where kids were so I had to keep it very like this is the latin root that means to hold you know so that that's the that was one thing it was fun to write but the but words from hell was really like a passion project I I as soon as I finished writing um, Once Upon a Word, I started writing. I wrote two um, book proposals. Uh, one was for Words from Hell. The other one was a book based on my blog called Useless Etymology. Before I published Words from Hell, before that was all accepted, I was on a podcast talking about Middle English. And uh, it was created, like, the, the podcast was developed with the help of the publisher, the UK-based publisher, Hachette. Um, and the uh, producer on the podcast was the acquisitions editor for the Chambers Dictionary line. So she was like, would you like to write another book? And I was like, how about these two? And she was like, we'll take both. Oh, really? So, nice. um, yeah, it was great. It helps. I used to be the uh, content director at Writer's Digest. So I knew a good bit about how to structure a book proposal and, you know, how to how to make a selling proposition for a piece of work and how to work with editors and how to do the research. So it helps to have done that in the past and worked in media. I'm sure. <laughs> I like that you kind of started the book off with referencing George Carlin uh-huh. and, and the seven dirty words. I'm sure everybody knows what the seven dirty words are now. <laughs> but uh, to me, that was kind of an homage to him. And, and when you look now, most of those don't even apply, as you kind of pointed out in the book, that they don't even fit as being dirty words anymore. Right. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that words have power depending on the agency you give them. And mm-hmm. I think that there's been a, a big push in, in, in both good and bad use of usage of words. I agree with that. I uh, one of my favorite examples, or one of my favorite, I guess, uses is um, in the context of like Australian slang. Like, I feel like Australians can make the worst and nastiest swear words completely oh, defanged yeah. by just peppering them through everything they say. Like the the c word is like not offensive. Uh, the Do you mind if I swear? You can say whatever you'd like because I was going to bring this <laughs> um, up. <laughs> My Australian friends are always saying, I call my mates cunt and my cunt's mate. 
<laughs> I was going to actually point that out. It, it, it's funny going through the book and, and the origin of cunt. You know, in, in the U.S., it's it's such profane and, and nasty word, but mm-hmm. I, I t- it's tend to be used as, as an insult, but I kind of don't like using it as an insult because when you get to more, and I'm going to throw this out literal, it usually is referencing a something of, of depth, which most people, when you're insulting them, they are lacking depth. But right. it, it's it's funny how in America it's such a bad word, but in Australia, in, in uh, Ireland, in England, you know, they drop it like a comma, like we use with fuck, which mm-hmm. to me I think is just by far the number one word in the English language because it's so absolutely fucking versatile. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the more interesting words that you found that kind of you were surprised with the origin or, or its transformation from its origin to where it is now? Specifically in words from hell or in general? Uh, in general. Because I'm working I'm working on the new one as, uh, as well. Um, I have a book deadline at the end of the month that this is currently being recorded in. So uh, I'm already uh, I'm already working on some of this. Um, the thing that surprises me most or the thing that I am often most surprised by when I'm looking into a word if I'm really stunned by it, it tends to be the timeline on it more than the shift in meaning. Though I can get to a couple that have surprising origins themselves. But one of them, the one that always surprises people is the fact that the word escalate didn't exist before the invention of the escalator. Which you would think, like, given, like, the context and the ways it's used in, like, war, yeah. you would think that word had been around for a long time, but it, it wasn't. Um, there was a, it, and you can look this up on Google Ngrams, like, the, you can track it in any public domain work in in uh, the English language, and it, it simply doesn't exist. Um, there was a word, escalade, but that referred specifically to, like, using ladders to scale a wall right. and uh, and not and not a Cadillac <laughs> SUV. <laughs> um, and, and it was related to scala, which was a word for a ladder or a, a scaler, literally. That one's always surprising. The other timeline one that always gets people is the fact that hello wasn't a standard greeting until the invention of the Bell Telephone. Before that, we would say, like, good day, good morning, good evening. And, and, like, we had variations like hello and hello that were more common with, like, an A or an O instead. Um, but but hello was not just something you said when talking face-to-face. Those other words were, like, a way you would hail someone from afar. When Alexander Graham Bell created the telephone, the greeting was meant to be something that, that also signified saying hello to someone from, or greeting someone from far away. Um, and he recommended ahoy, Versus, whereas uh, Edison came in and recommended yeah. hello, which was probably a variation on those earlier, like, hello terms. I, I was surprised to learn that shenanigans is not Irish in origin. I was quite dejected. Yeah. I was quite dejected when I found <laughs> out that it came in the 1800s in San Francisco. Yeah, that'll happen. <laughs> Some of those. I would say one of the more surprising and weird ones that you absolutely wouldn't expect is the word bridal. It, like, as in a bridal party. But it's also a horse bridal, right? Bridal, um, B-R-I-D-A-L is the the marriage version. B-R-I-D-L-E is the horse version. Right. I'm specifically talking about the wedding context version. And, um... It acts like an adjective, but originally, um, you'll, you'll notice we don't have a an adjective version for groom. There's no groomal. I mean, you can have it if you want, but <laughs> there's no, like, groomulous or groomic. Like, there's, there's right. no, like, regular word groom. that we use for that. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because bridal was originally a compound noun and not an adjective. In Middle English, there was a tendency, if you wanted to turn something into a party, you would tack the word ale onto it. So if you had, uh, if you were throwing a harvest party, it was called a scythe ale, like a, like using the, the tool a scythe, and you would throw an ale to go with it. Um, so a bride ale was the original word in Middle and Old English, and uh, so it was a, a big bridal party. But you didn't have to say party because there was no need for the adjective, or for the, uh, adjective there. Sounds like a, a, a scythe ale could get dangerous. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, going through the book, I, I came upon my son's favorite word, defenestrate. Oh, which yes. The origin on that was, was, was pretty uh, pretty interesting. Which it's for people, so specific. Oh, very. And I think that's one of the reasons why my kid loves it. For anybody who doesn't know what that means, it's to literally means, again, saying literally, it means to you know throw somebody out a window. 
specifically throwing them out a window. And I was very surprised to kind of find out that it literally came out from somebody being thrown out a window on three separate occasions. Yes, that's right. It's um for, for the audience. Um, it's the uh, defenestration of Prague. There were three defenestrations of Prague. Um, the third one was called the third defenestration of Prague. <laughs> and that was when the term was introduced into English to describe that moment. But the other two were retroactively called the first and second defenestrations. And now the, the third one began a war and the first one began a war. These were all like councillors being chucked out of the Prague city council win- windows by um, Protestants or, or um, other uh, dissenters, and they would, you know, these people would either die or be thrown on angry protesters. In one <laughs> case, they got thrown onto a pile of dung and they lived. But in the first and the second cases, they began, and this is over a period of like 300 years, they started a war, like a religious war between Protestants and Catholics. And um, the second one is sometimes called the one and a half defenestration of Prague because that one didn't start a war. So apparently, to defenestrate someone, it, it has to start a war. <laughs> Maybe they need to amend the uh, the definition on that. Right. <laughs> to throw someone out a window and, and then start, start a war. war. <laughs> or starting a war by throwing someone out a window. When you kind of dive into the these word origins, do you have you noticed any trends or common elements of how words have changed over time? Or is it just kind of a, just a hodgepodge and generational thing? Well, um, I'd say it depends on what era we're talking about. If we're talking about like the transition from Old English to Middle English to Modern English, that has a lot to do with, as you may have read, the uh, the Norman invasion in 1066, which took the previously purely Germanic Old English language and the language of the Anglo-Saxons and infused it with uh, tons of Romance language words, uh, particularly through French, but were ultimately primarily Latin-derived. To the extent that we are still, like, English is still a Germanic language, but about 60% of our vocabulary is from Romance languages. Interesting. So that's that tends to be the trend you see, is, like, Old English is, is almost unintelligible to most average readers these days. Middle English becomes easier to understand if you read the Canterbury Tales. Right. You know, you can... You can clue out what it's saying, but it's not immediately apparent that one that April was as short as Sota means, you know, when in April, when it was raining a lot. That's neat to see. I, I think English continues to evolve. I don't know that it will, I don't know to what extent or how quickly it would evolve into a separate language, much like it did with Middle and Old English without, you know, and a dramatic change in globalization. But um, I, I would say I'm interested in, and almost looking forward to seeing in my lifetime, hopefully, how multiculturalism in the U.S. Tra- changes and infuses uh, American dialects. You know, we already have different um, Spanish-English dialects in different areas of the country, and I'm sure many more beyond that. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing how that comes together and how it changes the way we interact. I also like to see, uh, there's a wonderful book called, it's behind here somewhere, I think it's one of these yellow ones, uh, Because Internet by Gretchen McAuliffe, and she's a, she's a linguist, um, and she, and the book is about the, the logic and grammar and rules of the way we speak online, because it is kind of a free-for-all, but we have rules, and, and the way, like, language becomes a meme, the way we use capitalization and the way we denote sarcasm with capitals and, and non-capitals or minuscule and majuscule letters is um, is really interesting. And I love that book. Yeah, I was going to say that there's one of the problems I think has kind of come out with, you know, texting as, as frequently as you have is there's loss of, of context, there's loss of, of inf- an inflection. So, you know, you could say something that could be completely meant completely benign and it can be completely misconstrued but i do like you know the meme like you said where if, you know you're being sarcastic and kind of just being an ass or whatever you big capital letters lowercase letters all combusted together but there's still some some general sense of etiquette you know you don't put all caps if you have all caps it's kind of meant to express anger or excitement or something and i'm gonna have to find that up i, I did want to ask about dialects do you have you noticed that dialects from the different regions affect the word meaning at all yeah definitely um it tends to show up i think in idioms a little bit more you know you'll um you'll hear too big for your britches or something like that more often in the south but you also like 
what we call different foods and things tends to vary between Opposite. different regions. That's always fun. I, I work with a lot of people from like Wisconsin and their interpretation of, of different <laughs> things and the, the way just they'll um, reference common items varies dramatically. And it's always kind of fun on the note of sarcastic punctuation. I, one thing that you said is that like in text, we've kind of lost some nuance with lack of punctuation and things like that. But I love that it's almost a little full circle here because back in like the early days of like scribal writing, punctuation wasn't always like a thing that anyone used. So like, and it was used to convey meaning ultimately. So like people would use like notation systems and, and dots and like the, the pilcro that we use to denote a paragraph was originally like a thing that people would write in the margins of handwritten texts to uh, denote the next line when oh. otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell in black letter style. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the word paragraph means beside the writing. And then um, Pilcro is a weird like mutation of the word paragraph. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Um, but then there, like for all, for all time, or at least for a few hundred years, we've been trying to develop sarcastic punctuation and we have not yet done it. Like, Today, I mean, you can convey it in many ways. So, like, maybe we have, but it, there's no consistent way to do it. We right. mentioned, like, alternating capitals. You could use tildes. Like, well, isn't that special with tildes outside of it? Or you could use, like, HTML, uh, HTML tags, like a uh, slash S to end the fact that you're um, sarcastic online. You might use an, an italics, or you might use italics like you're so clever, or put something in quotes like right. you're a so-called word nerd. <laughs> but there were, they like people have tried. Like in the 1580s, there was a guy named Henry Denham who was a, a printer, and he tried to introduce a backwards question mark called a percantation point to denote sarcasm. And then sometimes, like for a little while, in, 16, in the 1600s, John Wilkins was a clergyman who proposed using upside-down question marks and exclamation points to either convey irony or sarcasm. There was the pointe d'ironie, the irony point by Alcante de Bram. And then um, I want to say there's one more that I'm forgetting, but there have just, just been so many examples of people trying to make it stick, and it never has. Right. Hopefully you get it in the in the tone of the writing, and, and I guess that's the way that they hope to convey it. So, when right. when you do your deep dive on on the word origins, you know, how do you avoid you know the, the forks in the road to come down rabbit holes to kind of stay on point? So what I typically well, okay, I don't. Um, I, t- <laughs> I take I take all the rabbit holes, which is why I have like many books worth of material <laughs> on hand. Um, but. Uh, that's the truth. But the way that I, um, the way that I dig deeper, like, you know, you can start with, uh, you just start with a definition. Um, you find a word and you'd like, ah, where does that come from? That's kind of a weird spelling. So also, you know, you start with your definitions. I usually start with Barnhart or Chambers. Those are, um, Robert K. Barnhart is a, an, an etymologist uh, and lexicographer and philologist who died, I believe, in the 80s or perhaps a little later. I don't quote me on that, <laughs> but he uh, he's no longer with us. Um, and I love the way he writes about etymology, even in dictionaries, because he adds a little bit of like interest to it. There's a little bit of editorialization, but not in a way that, that disrupts the factual factualness of the of the the definition so i'll start there but then i i pay close attention to dates like if it says this was first used in 1634 like but it doesn't say where i will go find it um so um anything published before i want to say it's like 1928 now is in the public domain so uh, the vast majority has been digitized already it's pretty easy to find on google books gutenberg university libraries so i'll dig in there the the oed's um etymology resources are also very detailed because they'll sometimes link to primary sources uh you do it is a subscription but i think it's well worth it and for me it definitely is right. But uh, so I'll find the, the original sources and then I'll compare some of the the contexts. So if I find like a Middle English word is used um, X way or Y way, um, then I'll, I'll try to find a few that are around that time that that show variations in that usage. Uh, one that was kind of funny recently that I didn't include in words from hell and I'm sad that I didn't find it in time is the word fundament. 
um, like the word fundamental right. is, uh, it, you know, it means like your foundation, essentially. Um, the word fundament was used as a word for a butthole originally, <laughs> like <laughs> because it's the thing you sit on. <laughs> so, so I found <laughs> um, <laughs> it's amazing. And I found like a variety of quotes, most of them like horse care manuals about like, you must put a piece of garlic up his fundament to make. <laughs> and I kept looking and I found a piece, like a translation of Aristotle from like 1500 something. And it said, like, it said like in the same way that the man sneezeth by the nose and farteth by the fundament, he also, <laughs> that was like, what I have to ask, what other words have you come across that have that like almost shocking origin? This isn't exactly an origin, but it's a relative that cracks me up because it dramatically changes the way like a word that we use all the time. Um, it's the word fascinate. It, it's like the the word, it, it's Latin in origin, fascinare. Um, and I, I may have my pronunciation a little bit wrong. The S's and C's confuse me between classical Latin and, and church Latin. But uh, that meant, like, essentially to enchant or bewitch someone. But the reason it meant to enchant or bewitch someone is because it is related to the word or the name of the god Fascinus, whose symbol you'll see all over Rome. I challenge anyone listening to this podcast to look up what a Fascinus is. F-A-S-C-I-N-U-S. Google that. Google image search it. See what comes up. That would be a symbol that was associated with that god that I mentioned. (laughs) It's it's a flying dick. It's a flying dick. It's a penis. Um, With wings. And these are everywhere, and they're all over. Like there, you can find hundreds of them all over Rome. They're just everywhere. And and it was. It's not necessarily that fascinate means like to bewitch someone with a dick, but it's not far from that because of the associations. Yeah. Between <laughs> those things. That's that's amazing. It's amazing. It's it's a, a giant flying phallus and it was everywhere um uh let's see so um a couple other like unexpectedly sexy ones um the word gulf um is literally a boob of the sea it's originally from uh, a greek word that referred to like bays and gulfs but literally meant bosom referring to the curved shape of the geographical feature another favorite one that i have is the word gymnasium can you guess what the greek root of the word gymnasium means I would venture to say it's, you know, a place of sport. <laughs> it means naked. Um, the word... Oh. <laughs> the, the, Run that by uh, me again. <laughs> it means naked. The The word gymnasium was literally a place to train naked, like a place where you would go so that you could... I mean, presumably you were probably... Uh, they had gymnasiums for both men and women but you could go and and be naked and work out because that's typically how you worked out in ancient greece yeah and (laughs) and there were like it was also extended to like other places where you could train even your mind so like there are also there were also schools called gymnasiums for a time which makes that route really awkward free your mind by being naked in your mind i guess that works (laughs) apparently um (laughs) Let's see, another one, um, the word vanilla is from the Latin word uh, vagina because it's a small, like, sheath or a pod for vanilla beans. One, the, the vanilla vanilla was altered by way of um, Spanish because uh, Spanish explorers went to the, the New World, found, found cultivated and colonized uh, vanilla and brought it back to Europe. So that one, they, they, they were introduced by different routes, but yes. Interesting. Vanilla and vagina, same word. Cognates. <laughs> so, um, kind of shift gears completely from that one. Um, <laughs> uh, kind of as as I said before, you know, with words, they really kind of have the power that's equivalent to the agency that we give them. And I think that we currently have seemed to have lost track or sight of of our ability to communicate with each other. And I kind of I hate to use the metaphor, you know, war on anything because I think war metaphors have really kind of fucked things up in our country <laughs> uh, going back from the 60s. But it almost feels like there's a war on intellectualism over the last 10 years or so. We've lost the ability to sensibly and logically discuss our differences of ideas. And instead of arguing our points, 
with fact and reason and logic, people seem to just open up the book of logical fallacies and kind of just throw them out there. Yeah, I, I have some concerns about what I've, what at least I've heard, and I'm sure a lot of this had to do, it's it's outside of their control, but it had to do with a, um, the fact that a, that a lot of kids missed out on education during the pandemic um, yeah. or were um, not able to access um, school environments in the same way that they were before. And just, I, I've heard so many stories from teachers of like kids who can't read and sixth grade um yeah. lately and that that concerns me i i hope that at some point we can reignite that love of of reading and knowledge because i i know that at least like as a millennial i'm i'm well i benefit from having been an overeducated you know generation i um i'm not gonna assume your age but i'm guessing you're also elder millennial or um gen x i think i fall into all that. right cool well i mean <laughs> both of us had access to like oh i think I think a lot more dynamic schooling and and the ability to, or at least places where we, we were given the opportunity to be challenged and to think, obviously I'm coming from a place of privilege. A lot of people in my generation did not get that too. Right. So there's that, but it, it seems more widespread now. And I, I agree, people are, are angrier on the internet. And I don't know that I would... I don't know that I would necessarily call it a war, but I don't think that's unfair of you to think either. Um, I... I would probably attribute a lot of a lot of that to monetization of education and language, not monetization of language, but monetization of access to higher education. It, it almost makes it so that in order to make a, a living, it's almost more beneficial to pursue trades rather than humanities. And so you lose a lot of the like the intellectual curiosity around literature, which isn't just stories. It's. Uh, it tracks the way we've communicated and thought and the philosophy that's shaped our entire culture. Yeah. I, I've, I come from the generation that, you know, we grew up in, in understanding what the Dewey Decimal System was and having to go through the card files to find the books we wanted at the beginning of my academic school life. And then up to the point where I, by the time I graduated, you know, we were using computers and doing things that way. So I look back at my time and I go, I wish I kind of dove a little more in their books before, but now that I'm out of high school, and I guess it's because I have the, the freedom to read what I want. I'm not being told, you have to read this, you have to read this. It's I, I pick up what I want, and I think I have like six books that I'm currently reading. Right. But I, I do see what you were talking about with the potential issues that may have come up from the pandemic with students, because both my kids, my oldest ended eighth grade in the pandemic. And my youngest- That's was a tough in, time to do that. <laughs> and my youngest was in sixth grade, you know, two years apart. They were both like A-B students until they stopped having to get up and go to school and, you know, be in the brick and mortar school. Their grades just tanked because their attention spans was all over the space, all over the place. Once they got back into schools, there was that improvement again. So I, I do fear, and, and even some of the teachers that I spoke to that I'm friends with uh, have kind of echoed the similar concerns that you have. So trying to find maybe like a new new version of Harry Potter to kind of get the kids to want to read again. I wonder if uh, a new medium might not also help too. Um, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed um, a couple different things. Like, you know, even I have, I, I have ADHD as well. Um, I've never had an issue with like necessarily uh, not being able to, to read. I've, I've never struggled with that, but that's because I would like hyper fixate on reading. <laughs> so, you know, that was just one of my things. Um, for that background. But uh, I would say um, these days, since, you know, the internet is in our faces all the time, I have benefited from audiobooks, which I didn't really enjoy when I was younger. But now I've found that, like, I can do chores and listen to an audiobook at the same time. I'm not just sitting there listening. I'm, like, doing something else, but I'm still uh, focusing on the story. And it makes it makes it easier to do the physical task that right. I would normally get distracted with. Right. And, and to listen to the story at the same time. So I wonder, and I also, I, I, I video game relatively frequently, and I've enjoyed some, like, narrative-based games that have some good writing and storytelling. And I think there's a lot of potential there for strong writing to, to become a fixture. I'm, um, I'm a huge fan of... Dungeons and Dragons for the oh yeah for the the things that people don't understand unless you've played it they they don't understand the 
the thought process that you can get out of it, the sense of community you get out of it, the critical thinking skills, the, the planning, the, the expression, the creativity aspect of it. Um, do you play by chance? I have played before. I haven't played in a while. I have been playing Baldur's Gate, though, which is a video game iteration of that. But I have played in the past. I love it. Um, It's it's such an educational and, like, fun experience. You get to be creative. You get math. You get to to venture into your imagination. It's so much fun. Yeah. I would imagine you'd you'd be a a great bard. Oh, man. That's that's what I've been playing in, (laughs) in Baldur's Gate right now. (laughs) um i noticed that there's uh i'm trying to i was going to say the word because i found it when i was trying to schedule uh work things out and and learn a little bit more about what you do and i'm going to try and pronounce it without butchering it epistemophilia it is the um excessively striving for or preoccupation with knowledge Interesting. I like that word. I don't know that word. I know. Uh, I, I'm assuming epi- it's related to epistemology. Uh, that would be a good thing for you to dive into. <laughs> that would make sense. Yeah. So let's see. I, I, I looked up epistemology once. It's the, the theory of knowledge. Yes, absolutely. So that would be it. What was the ending on the word you said? Uh, Filiac. So it's, you know. Filiac. Interesting. Okay. Sorry. I need to look up what that, what that ending literally means. But I, interestingly, um, the theory of knowledge means like to stand over or near something, which um, I be- I believe what the what that's trying to get at because it, this is like a philosophical term from the eighteen hundreds. But I think what it's trying to get at is the same like the literal interpretation of the word understand. Like the the word understand literally means to stand within or to, to be positioned within a subject so that you have a thorough comprehension of it. Right. Um, the word under was um in the in middle english it, it meant under but it also meant like between it also meant among it also uh, prepositions did a lot of work in, in the past <laughs> yeah we have gotten much more specific nowadays <laughs> i i just have the i've grown into having this this thirst for knowledge and again why i'm reading like six different books one on hamilton uh one on jefferson oh, there's like two other two or three other books that i have that i'm like pages deep into and I put it down and go find another one, put it down and go back to the other one. It, it's crazy, but I just, it's one of the reasons why I actually started the podcast too, is because I just enjoy talking to people, learning about them, what they do. And it's kind of from my own edification of, of getting knowledge and, and learning more. That's wonderful. I am. Um, I, so I'm a, a journalist editor on the side and I think that's why I like interviewing people a lot and, uh, and diving into those stories. I've, worked in like the b2b space for a long time so i end up talking to a lot of professionals about their their careers so that's always kind of fun because you get into like what motivates people to come to work every day yeah i for my reading i'm i'm almost entirely like i I skew fiction but typically sci-fi and fantasy for the the escapism which i really enjoy i just finished what is it the ninth book or the twelfth book in robin hobbs assassin's quest series it starts with they're all called like Assassin's Fate or Assassin's Quest or Fool's Quest because that's one of the other characters. That's an excellent series. And then um, I also just finished a really interesting Ukrainian surrealist fantasy Harry Potter, but not. Um, <laughs> and also like absolutely nothing like Harry Potter whatsoever uh, called Vita Nostra. That was really interesting. It it helped to have read Turgenev and Kafka. Otherwise, I think I would, I would have been like, what is happening? <laughs> Nobody turned into cockroaches, but they may as well have. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned the name Fool, um, and that, that immediately brings the, um, the Fool trilogy from Christopher Moore. Oh, yes, those are so good. I actually had, Chris, I, I talked to Christopher Moore a while back, and, and he was just, oh, great. he was fun to talk to. But the, the Fool series, just, just that character is absolutely amazing, which... He's so good. Lent to one of my favorite words is words of exasperation, you know, fuck stockings. And people are like, where'd you get that from? And I'm like, this awesome book, go read it. I love it because it, it, it draws upon like his work in particular, that series draws upon the like kind of filthiness that, that was that Shakespeare, right. you know, leveraged with like Falstaff yeah. and whatnot. <clears throat> but like just pages and pages of insults. And and they're great. I mean, it's, it's the, the, I blew right through them, and I'm actually, let me rephrase that. I blew through the first two, <laughs> and about halfway, three-quarters of the way through the, the last one, which is uh, Shakespeare for Squirrels, which might have something to do with my affinity for squirrels. But 
that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> what are your, to kind of touch back with my, my initial thought process with agencies and word agency and such, what are your thoughts on, on the notion of people that have influence and authority having a sense of responsibility to speak honestly? That's an interesting question. I would say, generally speaking, truth is truth is power and truth is important. And there's, there. I mean, the, the word etymology means like the study of the truest sense of the word and the root means truth. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, truth is sometimes flexible, but I think that especially if you're a public figure, you have a responsibility to at least be genuine and authentic. And that word is overused and beaten to death. And the public sphere, but it's it's a good one, and there's a reason that people use it that frequently. Yeah, I, I find myself using certain phrases and, and metaphors that have been completely pulverized from what they're because they've been used so I don't want to say improperly, but they've been used overused so much, and then the the reality of of and the genuineness to it is completely lost. Yeah, the the term authenticity in particular was beaten to death by advertisers and brands right. like, you know, authentic brand this, authenticity. Authentic that. Uh-huh. I can imagine that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump into my 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 questions of um would you rather? Okay. So the first one would be uh, would you rather go ice fishing or deep sea fishing? Deep sea fishing because I am very cold all the time. I'm uh I'm not a fishing person even though my parents drug me along. This might be why I'm so opposed to it now. But when I was a kid, my parents used to go fishing all the time, and it, I hated it. But uh, I think if I had to pick between the two, the idea of pulling out something from the deep is, is interesting, so I'd probably go with the deep-sea fishing. I think, um, given the context, you could convince me the other way around. Like, if I had a nice, cozy cabin to go hang out in and then come back in from the ice fishing or watch someone else do the ice fishing, then then I could probably do that. My my understanding is it's it usually there's some sort of uh, shelter that like a kinda, shack on the lake yeah that you dig a little hole in the floor and you go through the ice but uh, yeah I'm good uh, yeah I'd rather be on 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 a boat where I can be warm mm. uh, second question strawberry shortcake or creme brulee for dessert yes both <laughs> uh, if I in a pinch I would probably go with the creme brulee because it's harder to make right. Whereas like strawberry shortcake, I could probably assemble myself. Whereas like I've tried making creme brulee and I'm have like a 50, 50 success rate. Yeah. I, I like you said, it, it depends on the mood. Um, but I, I think because strawberry shortcake is such a quick, easy thing you can do, it'd, it'd be a, be a go-to for me. If it were a blackberry shortcake, I would have a harder time deciding though. I like blackberries a lot. Got it. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, never sleep in socks or always sleep in socks. Never. I cannot handle things touching my feet at night. I think that's the the, the common thread is, and the only reason why I even wrote it down is because it was just so peculiar. Just, I'm like, who actually sleeps with socks on intentionally? The only time I, I ever do it is like if I'm camping and it's really, really cold outside, something along those lines. But my dog sleeps on my feet, so that's, that's yeah, I sufficient. Yeah. <laughs> If I have to, I'll wrap a blanket around my feet just so I don't have to wear socks. Uh, let's see. Um, a sack race or a three-legged race? I like a sack race because, and, and this is like a personal thing, I'm very clumsy, and I also dislike being inconveniencing other people. So I feel that if I were in a three-legged race, not only would I have difficulty with it i would make the person with me lose so i like having the agency of being in my own sack yeah i i I went with the sack race as well just because i'd rather lose a race knowing that it was my own klutziness and solely my fault than blaming somebody else for getting tangled up or not be able to keep up or keeping finding that right rhythm for the run yeah i would be the weakest link in the uh in the three-legged race (laughs) uh let's see would you rather have a magic button to erase songs that you hate or bad movies from being released? I think probably bad movies from being released because I can tolerate a bad song because it's only like three minutes. But um, if I go to a movie thinking that it's going to be good and then I have to sit there for two hours, then I am upset by the end of it. I get that. I would go with having the bad song deleted from my my skull. Um, so it doesn't ever have to trouble have you to again. hear it again, but... Movies can't get stuck in your head quite as easily. Yeah, once like, uh, what was it? Manchester by the Sea, I think. Everybody raved at how great of a movie this was, and I sat there watching it, going, 
when does it get good? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think because I, I kind of on the side produce short films, oh. um, I think that deleting somebody's creative process, regardless of good or bad, which obviously is, is clearly subjective, I would I feel bad about that. But if I can delete it from my own personal space, my own head, you know, no harm, no foul. I, it would be nice if, like, you you could mentally curate, like, a streaming service with only the movies you like and everyone else can enjoy it the ones that aren't have, your like, jam. Princess Bride on loop. Oh, yeah. Along with 100%. Monty Python, <laughs> Holy Grail, and things like that. But uh, We are aligned. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can people find your, your stuff and follow you, like your blog and, uh, and your books and such? My, uh, most of my social handles are, uh, my name, which is J-E-S-S-Z-A-F-A-R-R-I-S. I did make up my last name and would be happy to explain why in a moment. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you can also find my blog at uselessetymology.com. Um, my books are available anywhere you buy books. I recommend just because it's good practice to support your indie booksellers. Um, and if they don't have it in stock, you can usually get them to, to place the order and it'll be within, in within a day or two. And I also appreciate that because it gets the book out into the indie world a little more. As for my name, to you know wrap up that one, uh, since I mentioned it, my last name, my unmarried name is Ferris, F-A-R-R-I-S. And I married a guy who's, I, I'm uh, of... Irish Scots descent, ultimately, and he is of Greek descent, and his last name is Zafaris, Z-A-F-E-R-I-S. Two different spellings, we smashed them together into the same pronunciation, Zafaris, <laughs> but with my spelling. Right. I, I like that. <laughs> it, it shows your creativity. <laughs> also, then, I, like, if I had hyphenated, I would have been like, Ferris Zafaris or Zafaris Ferris, so, like, that would have been, that would have been egregious, right? Yeah, it would be a, a, a mouthful and, and a, a lot of a lot of word space. <laughs> um, I greatly appreciate the conversation and the uh, enlightening me to some of the, the words and symbols from Greece. <laughs> Any parting words before we uh, end it? Let's see. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm I'm so excited to be here. This has been a really fun conversation just in general. So I'm glad we got the opportunity to do it after several rescheduling tries. Um, <laughs> as for parting advice, if I were to give anyone, uh, my, my recurring advice is to wield your words for good and for creativity and for the pursuit of knowledge. I absolutely love that. And I'm going to end it just on that. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.